Good morning. Um, burning Windows Data. I'm going to chair this uh, session. Uh, we are very lucky to have Mamia Pali with us. Um, she is going to talk about benevolence, the two, and then Erasmus is going to reply. Um, the two speakers um, will uh, have a bit of a conversation between uh, them before we open uh, the floor for the questions. Mamia uh, is going to talk uh, for about a quarter of an hour or so. Uh, then uh, Erasmus is going to reply, and then Nomi is going to reply. Mm -hmm. No, he's dead around. He's last. Yes, then uh, you reply to his, uh, his reply, and uh, you reply to Nomi. You begin, he goes uh, next, you, uh, you go next, uh, and he goes it last. It should be like in presidential debates, they should then auction the right to be. <laughs> The last, <laughs> but he gets it. <laughs> okay, can I ask you not to take uh, photos uh, during the uh, uh, during the, uh, the talk because it distracts the speakers very much, um, and uh, that's all. Thank you for gathering here in such an unlovely hour. <laughs> As you might think, it's a little early, but I am a profound night owl. I normally get up at 12, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm uh, excited enough about this event that I'll pull an all there. <laughs> um, so, Veronique has only given me a quarter hour, so I'm going to do that just a quick uh, TLDR of my paper. <laughs> For those of you who avoid social media, it means too long, didn't read. <laughs> um, so, suppose you think that morality is all about well-being. Maybe you're utilitarian, maybe you think more in terms of protecting well-being than in terms of maximizing it. At any rate, you think morality is just about well-being, as Philip Foot would put it, benevolence is the only virtue. Um, if you do think that, then uh, there's an obvious challenge that you're facing. The challenge is that prima facie, there seem to be other there seem to be virtues uh, uh, that don't have to do with well with benevolence, and there seem to be values other than well-being that all fit within morality. The usual suspects being virtues and values involving respect for autonomy or involving fair dealing. And so if you are the well-being person, uh, you need to show how all of those things come down to well-being. That's a tall order. And, and I'm one of the many people who think that uh, consequentialists don't manage to do it successfully. Now, suppose that instead of a utilitarian or well-being person, you are a certain kind of Kantian, and you think that morality is all about reverence for rational agency. You have a similar challenge, because prima facie, there seem to be virtues and values that don't have an obvious connection to rational agency or revering it. Oh, one of these things is benevolence, because one of those virtues is benevolence because one of these values is well-being. 
So, so I think there well, there are prima facie reasons, reasons to suspect um, that benevolence is a virtue, and even though probably not the only one, uh, and that it's not about reverence for rational agency, it's about concern for the well-being of your fellow humans, at least the humans. Um, so what do Kandians say in, in response? They say, look, what we reveal when we reveal rational agency is the ability to set, that we have to set ends, and we have a duty to adopt and promote the ends of others. Voila, benevolence. Coming <laughs> um, derived from uh, reverence for rational agency. And that can work if you have the view sometimes attributed to Kant himself, and I'm not going to argue with Kant himself only with his representatives on earth at this point. And so the view often attributed to Kant himself uh, that promoting and protecting your well-being on one hand and adopting and promoting your ends on the other are the same task or at least are always compatible with one another. Good enough, similar enough for government work. Uh, harmonious with each other. But uh, a lot of us in the 21st century, including the very Kantian Stephen Darrell, don't accept that view because we seem to have ends that are not about our well-being. We seem to have ends that conflict with our well-being. And if I have ends that conflict with my well-being, then it seems to be the case that if you were to make it the case that I achieve all my ends, um, you will not necessarily be promoting or protecting my well-being. It might go in the other direction. So, back to the drawing board. Uh, how do you get from relevance to from relevance for rational agency uh, to concern for well-being? One thing the Kantian can do at this point, and uh, I think high levels that because it can. Uh, is uh, to say this. Okay, so we have a duty to promote and adopt people's ends. It's about ends, it's not about well-being. However, even though we have a lot of ends that interfere with our well-being, it's still true that for, all, for just about everyone, maybe literally for everyone, for each person, his or her well-being is one big end that they have. They rate it quite highly. And so the view is not so revisionary because when you adopt and promote people's ends, you will spend a lot of time protecting people's well-being. It will come together. Um, now what I argue in the paper uh, is that this doesn't work. That you can't explain uh, the importance of well-being in the considerations of the well-being of others in the considerations of a moral agent, uh, simply by appeal for the fact that people rate their well-being very highly, that it's an end that they really care about. It's a little similar to Scanlon saying that even though people value things other than their well-being, uh, the state has a specific, has a special duty towards their well-being. Uh, okay. Um, so let me start with two cases, and then I'm going to go more principled. 
the first case has, is not, strictly speaking, about benevolence. It's about love, which I think are related. Uh, benevolence is also like love <coughs> for nature, but I think it can illustrate something that I'm trying to get at. So we, suppose we have two people. In the paper, I gave them Basque names, uh, Alites and Miriam. And uh, uh, they are friends or partners. Uh, Miriam loves Alites. And Alites has two ends that are very important to her, uh, which we, she cares about equally. One is her well-being. The other one is the well-being of the Basque language which she doesn't want to go extinct. Uh, so compare two scenarios. Miriam says to Alites, you've done enough for the Basque language this month, do something for yourself for a change, versus Miriam telling Alites, you've done enough for yourself this month, do something for the Basque language for a change. <laughs> There's an asymmetry here. Not that there's anything wrong with saying the second sentence. There are situations in which it would be perfectly legit. Maybe the two of them share the end of promoting the vast language. And uh, in this case, there's nothing wrong with one of them telling the other, oh, time to do something for the cause. But still, if she says that, it would be qua somebody who loves the vast language, not qua somebody who loves a lot. Um, and it's interesting to observe the same symmetry in what I think is the fact that uh, if I care a lot about the Basque language, but you just don't get it, uh, it might or might not be a barrier to us having a friendship or, or a romantic relationship, depending on what our characters are like. Uh, but if you care about, if you share all my ends except my well-being, you don't love me, sorry. Uh, okay. So that's the kind of asymmetry I'm talking about. And now let's move to my last example, which is about benevolence. So suppose we have this person in the paper I call her Mercedes. Uh, Mercedes is, uh, kind of, is kind of rich. And uh, one day, uh, along comes a young acquaintance of hers who is relatively poor and asks her if uh, she could lend him $50. Um, why? It turns out that he owes money to a gangster, and he's only missing $50 of the whole sum, but the gangster, if he doesn't give exactly the right amount back in cash, uh, will have him beaten up. Not to kill him, but definitely make him hurt and possibly put him in the hospital for a little bit. So he's terrified and he wants the $50. Mercedes say, let's say he's a good judge of character, she believes him, it actually happened to somebody I know. Names change to protect the guilty. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> anyway, uh, so, um, uh, so uh, she believes him when he says, uh, I learned my lesson, not worrying from gangsters anymore. Now, there is a large uh, range of, of scenarios in which if Mercedes is benevolent, she will give him the $50, uh, even if she thinks that she's not going to get him back so super soon. Okay, switch scenarios. Uh, suppose we have Mercedes again, and uh, she's approached by a young 
acquaintance who is relatively poor. I called him Leonard. I called the first one Roger. Um, so uh, Leonard is named after Tim Schroeder's uncle. <laughs> Roger is the name of anybody. Anyway, so Leonard uh, needs fifty dollars. What does he need it for? Uh, he's uh, desperately rounding off the cost of going on a trip to Sierra Leone where he wants to defend and spread the Mennonite religion. Um, so uh, we assume, let us assume with Mercedes that the Mennonite religion is morally neutral. Um, and suppose it turns out that spreading his religion is at least as important to Lenin as not being beaten up is important to Roger. He cares about it as he cares about his religion as much as Roger cares about his well-being. I still I, I think in that case there is a wide range of scenarios in which it would not be unbenevolent of a Mercedes to say, sorry I gave up the office. Um, and uh, there's certainly not as much of a pool as in the case of preventing somebody from being beaten up. <coughs> There might be some situations in which you'll have reason to give him $50. For example, if it seems like he'll be suicidal if he doesn't get to go to Sierra Leone. But I had Mercedes figure out that either he will eventually get over it and ask God for another task, or maybe whatever suffering he will undergo from not getting his wish, it's nothing compared to what he'll suffer in Sierra Leone, which was the site <laughs> of Ebola and atrocities. Okay. So I think there is this asymmetry here uh, between uh, helping Roger avoid the beating and helping Leonard spread his religion. And it has to do with the fact that in one case the end is well-being, in the other it's something else. Now, really quick, uh, some Kantians say that the reason it's urgent to help Roger is not his suffer the suffering he might undergo, uh, but the fact that he might lose his rational agency, uh, quickly my answer to that is, but he doesn't. Suppose he's not getting a head injury and he's not dying, he still has the ability to respond to practical reasons, even though not always to successfully act. You don't need to successfully act to be a rational agent. Uh, in the paper, I also talk about the old chestnut about which motives give moral worth and how caring about well-being uh, versus benevolence it does not equal warm, fuzzy feeling versus reason. Uh, feel free to ask about me about that during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you. So I had a bit of negotiation with Veronique before, and I haggled with her, and so I got a few more minutes for my reply. I have absolutely no power, you realize. But anyway. If I know that. And there's also a very unhelpful handout going around. So it's really a very great pleasure to comment on Nomi's very rich and stimulating paper. And Nomi raises a number of very interesting problems for the project of explaining the value of benevolence within a Kantian framework. And to some extent, I agree with her. So I, I also think that Kantians presumably cannot fully account for benevolence and cannot explain why everything that in everyday pre-theoretical morality we regard as morally valuable 
because it's benevolent, really has moral value. So if one is a Kantian as characterized by Nomi and believes that reverence for rational agency is the only genuine moral virtue, one should accept that one theory is revisionary with regard to our everyday theoretical morality. Where I don't agree with Nomi is in the assessment of how revisionary such a Kantian account would really be. So in believing in explaining why benevolent actions are more valuable and virtuous, I don't think Kantians miss that much. For most actions that go under the heading benevolent, Kantians can explain why they are morally valuable from considerations of reference for rational agency. And while there remains a group of cases where the Kantian explanation fails, this group is fairly narrowly circumscribed and is not morally set central. And furthermore, I'll try to show that even for these cases, Kantians have something to say. Maybe not enough to everyone's liking, but at least something. So I think the revision said at the end of the day, the Kantian account requires with regard to benevolence is not very drastic and may just be one a Kantian may reasonably prepare to swallow. And I'll proceed in three steps. So first, in the first two steps, I'll try to narrow down the class of actions which are on an intuitive understanding benevolent and whose moral value Kantians have difficulties in accounting for. And I'll first argue that the resources Kantians have for accounting for benevolent actions on the basis of reference are greater than Nomi thinks. And second, I argue that Kantians have good reasons to be wary of benevolence when it goes beyond reverence for rationalization. And this will help us to like zoom in uh, on the class of benevolent actions, which in my view, Kantians can't explain the moral value of. And in the last part of my talk, I want to very briefly say at what Kantians might still have to say about such cases. Okay, so Nomi considers Kantians who takes the sole moral virtue to be reverence for rational agency. Such reverence not only includes that we respect other rational agents, that we don't exploit them for our own ends, but also includes that we promote some of their ends and prevent threats to the rational agency. But as Nomi points out, such reverence will not cover all actions we normally classify as benevolent. Acting out of concern for others' well-being is not reducible to promoting the other's ends, in particular because an agent may not rank her own well-being very highly among her own ends, as Nomi said just a few minutes ago. And while I agree there is some gap here, I don't think the gap is that big and that most cases of actions that we should perform out of concern for others' well-being are also actions that we should perform out of reverence for the other's rational agency. And I think this is even true when one accepts Nomi's characterization of reverence as just encompassing as benevolence relevant factors, promoting another's ends and preventing things which threaten to undermine the other's rational agency. So if now but just to keep you on track to B22 on the handout to Roman 2. And in the paper I kind of deal with this question at some length. But here I only want to make three very brief points. First, Nomi herself referred to the Kantian strategy of arguing that agents usually have their well-being among their own ends, and that being benevolent also comes out as helping them achieve an end. And I'm more optimistic about this strategy, but I don't want to say anything about that. 
What I think is crucial to note is that Kantians must be more specific than just to say, than just saying that agents have well-being among them. So, and because well-being on its own is far too abstract a notion that can be filled out in far too many ways. So just think of the enormous variety of things that make some people happy while others simply abhor them. I know, just think about watching football, which some people <laughs> may consider full bliss while others may regard as terribly boring. In order for me to have some idea of how to help you pursue this end of well-being, I need to have an idea of what your specific conception of well-being is. And I have to know which specific aims you are pursuing, and which specific ends are such that the attainment would count as well-being on your part. Only then do I have some idea of how to benefit you. Um, however, I do think that Kantians can help themselves to some natural assumptions about what more specific goals they should pursue in this context, especially I think the avoidance of suffering is one which we can naturally people have in the end. Second, the connection between the failure to reach your ends and suffering is not one way, but a two-way connection, I think. Just as avoiding major suffering, suffering can naturally be assumed to be a high-ranking aim normal people have. A particular kind of suffering, namely the suffering of disappointment, is also a key criterion for determining which aims an agent has and how important an aim is to an agent. So as you mentioned that in the Leonard Mercedes case that Apali talked about, Leonard just shrugs off his failure to go on his mission. So he just, he feels no disappointment at all. That's not what they said. <laughs> I said imagine. <laughs> I think this would raise major doubts about whether he really cared about this project in the first case. In the first Third, um, Novi criticizes the Kantian strategy to explain the moral value of looking after another's well-being because, as she argues, it cannot account for the special moral urgency of preventing threats to another's well-being compared to the importance of helping her achieve some other aim. You can think about the Mercedes case with Leonard on the one hand and Roger, the guy who is in danger of being beaten up at the other hand. But to me, it is at least not clear that there really is such a special moral urgency, or always is such a special moral urgency, that has to be accounted for. It seems to depend on how important the agent's well-being and the other aim you can help her with are to her. And sometimes helping another person achieve an end not connected to her well-being is just as important and as morally important as protecting the person's well-being. So imagine, for instance, that a philosophy friend of yours, just before falling into a terminal coma, asks you to get a book manuscript on benevolence she has just finished to a publisher. And you know that this book project was a really central project to her over the last decades of her life, and it also would involve no relevant costs to you to get the manuscript to the publisher. Still, you simply cannot be bothered and throw the manuscript in the dustbin. It seems to me that this might be as much lacking in basic decency and as reprehensible as it would be for Mercedes, in Nomi's case, to help her refuse Roger. So the guy who's being threatened to be now. Okay, so this was uh, one one, and we have now reached the top of page two. In addition, I think that Kantians should insist that Nomi's understanding of reverence for rational agency 
uh, is too narrow. Reverence for national agency plausibly encompasses much more than promoting others' ends and protecting the Russian agency. For reverence for rational agency must be informed by an adequate understanding of what rational agency consists of. So even so it may sometimes sound like it for conscience, rational agency is even for them like not like a fetish, you have to venerate blindly. And rational agency doesn't exist in abstracto. It is always realized in more specific, particular activities, such as forming beliefs or setting ourselves ends. Many of these activities have constitutive aims or features over eye centering directed at other activities. And these connections and features must be adequately reflected in the content of our reverence for rational agency. And let me try to briefly illustrate this point for two kinds of rational activity, setting oneself ends and forming beliefs. The activity of the end setting is not an activity which we engage in for its own sake. Instead, this activity necessarily points toward a further activity, namely the activity of pursuing and trying to achieve the end that I've set myself. In setting myself an end, I must have pursuing um, and achieving this end in mind. Without this, um, we could not even understand what end setting was. This connection between end setting and pursuit must be reflected in how I value and care about a person's end setting nature. If I care about you as someone who autonomously chooses her ends, and said for no means part of reverence for Russian agency, I must also have some concern about your being able to pursue and reach your ends. Your general or long time inability to reach your ends, due to say lack of skills, physical disablement, or illness, cannot be something that I am completely indifferent to. Thus, in caring about your rational agency, I also have reason to care about your having the ability to pursue your ends. And this already significantly enlarges the scope of things reverence for rational agency gives us reason to do beyond promotion of ends you already have. And a similar point, I think, can be made with regard to the rational activity of forming beliefs. So according to an influential line of thought, this activity has a, con has a constitutive aim, not just to form some beliefs, but to form true beliefs, the aim of getting things right. So when I care about you as a rational belief former, I cannot merely care about you having the capacity to form beliefs, or you being engaged in forming beliefs. I must also care, at least to some degree, about whether you get things right. And if you continuously form false or even absurd beliefs, I cannot be completely indifferent to that. Instead, I will have some reason, at least, to try to see things correctly. At least if I have not completely written you off, I think you are epistemically beyond the pale. And interestingly, this point, that I should care to some extent whether you get things right, has far-reaching repercussions for Kantians. Because many contemporary Kantians believe that every decision or every adoption of an end involves a practical judgment about what is good. And if this idea is correct, then when you go wrong in this judgment and make a false decision, I have a reason to try to set you right. And this will even be so when you analyze and not properly take into account your own interests or needs. And this, I think, really gives Kantians quite a lot of scope to argue that we often have reverence-based reasons to try to convince people to look after their own good. And this is interesting because it's often held that for Kantians, such activities are somehow paternalistic magic. 
Okay, but let's leave it at that. So I think these two moves and similar ones can be made for other rational activities significantly broaden the scope of benevolent actions, which can be accommodated as morally valuable within the Kantian framework. Now, up to now, I've tried to show how the scope of benevolent actions that the Kantian can accommodate can be expanded. At the same time, I think we should accept that Kantians have like a good point in being wary of benevolence when it goes beyond reverence for rational agency. And I will very, be very brief here, but I think it's helpful to have here to have a quick look at what Kant himself thought about this matter in the metaphysics of morals. So Kant famously claimed that the duty of benevolence, that is the duty to further other people's happiness or well-being, requires us to promote some of the other agents' ends. And he didn't think that it required us to promote the happiness in some other way. And the reason for this interpretation of benevolence that Kant offers is interestingly not that he thinks that happiness simply is identical to reaching one's end. So I think that gets very clear in the metaphysics of morals that he doesn't want to simply identify happiness which achieving later ends. His main reason for understanding the duty of benevolence in this way seems to be the much more mundane consideration that I usually cannot know what will be good for you and good for the other person, except by looking at her ends. For if I don't look at her ends, I run the risk of falsely projecting what I think is good onto her. And doing someone good on the basis of such a false projection is not really doing her good at all. I may think I'm benefiting her, but I'm not really doing so. And this seems to be Kant's point in the quote you have at the bottom of page two, when he says, I cannot do any good to anyone in accordance with my concepts of happiness, thinking to benefit him in forcing a gift upon him. Rather, I can benefit him only in accordance with his concept. And note that this is an importantly different concern that Kant's raising here from the, from the ones that we must, in promoting an agent's good, be respectful to her, so that he cannot blindly force someone to have because the false projection worry already concerns the question of how we can determine what is good for the agent, for the other person. So it is not yet about the question of by what means we may promote her and or promote her good. And Kant's demands that I should look to the agent's own aims in order to determine what makes her happy and is good for her can be motivated by different considerations. So I think on the one hand, to a large extent, it's just true that the agent simply knows best what is good for her because she has had more relevant experience about what makes her happy. On the other hand, the agent's own choices partly determine what is good for her and what makes her happy. So for that point, just think of the connection again that holds between the importance of an aim to you and kind of how unhappy you feel about failing to achieve it. Also think of the, about the satisfaction that's typically connected to achieving one's goals. And also, I think we have good practical reasons, good moral reasons, to normally treat an agent as an authority on the question of what is good for him or good for her in order to avoid treating her disrespectfully, particularly because we, have, we should not deny that she's like an absolute peer. All of this is not to claim that agents are infallible about what is good for them, but it is to, I think it shows that normally we should accept that agents are, that persons are an authority about them. What's good for them? I'm reaching the end. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have time.
If this is correct, then we can narrow down the class of cases where benevolence and reverence on the Kantian picture can come apart. Now we're moving to page two, uh, page two uh, part four. Because these benevolence and reverence, it will turn out, can only come apart in those cases where I exceptionally think the agent, the other person, is mistaken in her judgment about what is good for her, or where I think her judgments about what is good for her are incomplete. And these are the truly neurologic cases for the Kantians, where the project of explaining why we should promote the agent's good from consideration of reverence threatens to break down. But whether it really does break down in those cases depends on the special kind of scenario we are dealing with. As long as Kantians can still connect their benevolent actions to furthering an aim the other person has, they still have the resources to explain why the benevolent action is morally valuable. And this connection can be made in many different ways. So for instance, when I do something which is necessary for an aim the agent pursues and which he himself simply forgot to do, or which he cannot do at the moment because he is in a coma. Or when I help the agent to further specify an aim she has, for instance, by offering her an option that she can either take up or decide against it. So imagine, for instance, that you have the aim of spending a nice evening and you are unsure about how to do it. I believe that going to the cinema would just be the best way for you to spend a nice evening, and so I buy you a cinema ticket. In doing so, I'm making a suggestion to you from what might be a good way for you to spend your evening, which you can still take up or resist. You don't have to go to the cinema just because I buy you a ticket. So I'm helping you to reach your end of spending a nice evening by helping you to make a first necessary step, namely specifying of how to spend a nice evening. And this will count as virtuous in the Kantian story. But despite all that, I think Kantians should admit that no, not all benevolent actions are like that. So sometimes benevolence just means doing something nice to the agent, which she can like, passively enjoy, and which she doesn't have to decide to enjoy. So imagine that I want my housemate, who is engaged in a big work project, to relax a bit tonight, and I know she feels much better and much more relaxed when she's listening to Mozart. So I put on her favorite Mozart CD in the evening, so she will listen to it while she's working, and she will be more relaxed. I take it since this action of mine is good on my part. I mean, it's morally good on my part. It's pretty low level. <laughs> it's not something to be very proud of, but still, it's, I get a bit of more credit for it. But this action cannot be construed as promoting an end of my housemate. So, for she may not have the end of relaxing tonight, and she doesn't have to decide to listen to Mozart. It's just that it happens automatically when the music is, is on. And I think that these cases of like, nice and accommodating actions are indeed not amenable to an explanation in terms of reverence. They display what one, one may call the virtue of amiability, and this is not a virtue, this doesn't come out as a virtue on the Kantian account. So that's bad for the Kantians, but I think they still have two things to say back. <laughs> so first, amiability is hardly central to common a general morality. For if the cases are not to fall within the scope of the Kantian reverence-based explanations, they cannot concern major issues where helping is particularly important, because otherwise we could find an aim the agents pursuing, and also it would be much more problematic to bypass the agents in decision. So the cases in question will have to be morally fairly low-key. 
And additionally, while amiability is important in close personal relationships, it is not central to general morality, so it's a duty we have towards anyone. And general morality is what Kantians are typically interested in most. And second, I think Kantians can even say something about cases of amiability. True, I think that when we try, if Kantians consider reverence for rational agency to be the only moral virtue, they cannot count amiability as a moral virtue too. That's true. But many Kantians have argued, and I think persuasively argued, that a concern for the well-being of others is a crucial character trait we need to possess in order to fulfill our moral duties to help. And the idea is that we need them in order to specify the general imperfect duties to help, and we need something that tells us what to do in particular cases where others might require our help. And concern for the well-being of others or sympathetic engagement with them is needed to make us responsive to their needs and to register ways in which we might help them. And I think this line of thought can be traced back to Kant's own ideas in the metaphysics of morals about our duty to cultivate our disposition for sympathetic engagement. If this is on the right track, then Kantians can argue that while amiability may not be a virtue proper, it's still reliable results from a reliable results from a morally valuable disposition, which morally good people will have, namely from the disposition of sympathetic engagement with others. So to sum up, I think that no means right, Kantians should accept, should plead guilty to the charge of not being able to fully explain the moral value of benevolence. But I think what they should play guilty to in doing that is not that much, it's quite little. <laughs> uh, and I think it's, so it's a safe Kantian departure from pre-theoretical everyday morality, at least from the charge of being outrageous. Small departure, but it's not that terrible. Thank you. <laughs> in a bad day, a bit of mustard can go a long way. You don't get a lot of praise because it didn't take that much pain out of you, but it's easy. Anyway, uh, thank you, Erasmus. I apologize for having interrupted you in the middle of a sentence. Please blame it on the three shots of espresso I'm on. And <laughs> undermine my rationality. <laughs> um, these were, uh, well, Erasmus sent me what, 7,000 words? And, uh, these, uh, so, and so I'm only going to focus on very few of them, um, very few, very little of what he says. Uh, but uh, I do have to say that these are the best comments I got on these ideas in a very, very long time. Thank you. Anyway, um, so there, um, there are three, three points. Uh, that I want to address out of all what says said in there. We both tried to talk about the things that we want, we that each other want to talk about, but it's it's hard to coordinate sometimes. Uh, one thing that Rasmus says there is about um, the case of I tell you about the case of Miria and the lights. So Miria is the one who tells her friend, uh, you've done enough for the Basque language, this month do something for yourself. And uh, Erasmus points out that sometimes they have a duty to set you straight, like, you know, barren paternalism, uh, 
you know, try to make it the case that you're not irrational. Uh, I won't talk about the part about belief because I don't think it's an activity to form beliefs. Only philosophers form beliefs. <laughs> Do you notice that? <laughs> you all get philosophers. Anyway, um, so uh, one thing Rashmi says that's very interesting is there are some cases where uh, I have kind of a kind of duty uh, to tell you, uh, oh look, your ends don't go over each other very well. You don't take in the right means, and specific, and, and especially that you don't uh, give enough. Uh, importance to your own needs, uh, especially your true needs, uh, like your health. And uh, I want to say about this the following. There was a time in which you could go to jail, uh, to prison, for supporting the Basque language. And uh, uh, suppose an alliance is ready to go to a nasty prison for the sake of promoting the Basque language. It was illegal under Franco, and going to prison will definitely uh, not be good for her true needs, right? Bad for her health. As my undergrads would put it, who are we to say <laughs> that she's irrational? <laughs> and so uh, I think it can be perfectly rational and so nothing to correct. Uh, if a person, if for a person to care about some morally neutral end enough that she's willing to sacrifice a lot for it, whether it's truth or beauty or their football team for that matter. And so I wondered if Erasmus is not committed to a somewhat too square view of rationality. Uh, you know, care about your self-interest within morality, uh, you can be enthusiastic about something else, but not if it raises your blood pressure. Uh, the, the second point I want to say, uh, talk about is about uh, Leonard. Uh, so, uh, Erasmus doubts, he did it last year, uh, that the Leonard case is uh, realistic because they say uh, spreading his religion is super important to Leonard and then I'm still raising the possibility that you might get overreach. Uh, Erasmus says, uh, if you care about something quite a bit, you will be very disappointed uh, if you uh, can't pull the project off. Now, <coughs> I want to point out that there is no nice correlation along the lines of the more it's important to you, the more devastated you will be. There are people who at age 60 are still tortured by the fact that the band they started when they were 20 didn't take off. <laughs> On the other hand, there are people who have loved and lost uh, someone that they would have died for at the time and who managed to find a new love and have a good life again. So God knows what it depends on. Resilience, whatever it is, uh, uh, what personality you are, uh, Lots of jokers in that pack. Uh, furthermore, there are people for whom the worst disappointment is when they succeed in their projects. So we can imagine that person who tried very hard to be rich and famous, only to end up with, is that all there is? There are such people here and there. Um, 
And uh, if, we, if I was talking about desires, like I like to do, I might have tried to say being rich is not really what the person wanted. But there is no denying that he set it as an end for himself. Uh, now, this is gets into a more general point, because the, general, the original question was, how do we get from promoting ends to promoting well-being? And one part of Erasmus's answer is that, uh, because of the disappointment thing, uh, when we help a person with her ends, uh, we are ipso facto preventing a lot of preventing some suffering. Uh, I think that since rational agents are not, even if we ignore the is that always there is a case, since uh, rational agents are not always risk averse, as a Rolfian search all again and again. <laughs> um, it's something, it's quite, it's not that unusual for it to be the case that if I help uh, somebody with their end, I make disappointment more likely. Well, suppose uh, along comes someone and asks me for a letter of recommendation for philosophy grad school. I think of the job market the way it is. I think she's good, but she, there is, the risk of disappointment is still awfully high. Still, as I would Kantian help with her with an ends, with her ends, I would help her with that project. So uh, sometimes helping people with their ends makes the risk of disappointment actually higher. Okay, I left for last the more the the most uh, complicated bit. Um, so we have Roger, and uh, he's about to be beaten up, and we have some philosophers. Uh, like Barbara Herrmann say that uh, Roger being beaten up is an emergency, not because of the threat to his well-being, but because of the uh, threat to his rational agency. I say, oh no, unless he gets a head injury. And Rasmus basically says, but just a second, there is because uh, setting ends is not uh, an activity all by its, all by that makes sense all by itself. Let's, it, there is more to being a rational agent to uh, being able to respond to than being able to respond to reasons. You need some kind of an ability to, some modicum of ability to achieve it. Uh, now, uh, the first thing I want to say, just as a back, background point, a lot of Kantians I talk to think that rational agency requires a certain modicum of well-being. And I'm saying that even though extreme cases like torture can make you irrational or not a rational agent, there are plenty of people out there who uh, are, you know, very miserable. Uh, and yet, even if you take the extended idea of being a more a rational agent, the one that includes efficacy in achieving ends, there are some miserable people who put us all to shame in uh, setting ends and achieving them. Uh, and uh, I don't want to insult their rationality, to insult them without either rationality or their misery or their efficacy. Now, that aside, um, so let, recall how the whole, the whole, the whole, that discussion started. So Barbara Herman provides a very elegant answer to a question that a lot of my students have about Kant, namely, if the duty to help is imperfect, how come when I see somebody bleeding by the side of the road, I can say, oh, I only saved the life last week? Excellent question. And Barbara Herbert says, look, uh, 
the imperfect duty is to help people achieve their ends. Uh, the duty of easy rescue, the emergency duty, is about protecting a person who might lose their rational agency. Now, if we make if if we, if we make any part of inability to achieve your ends a threat to your agency, I worry that we might not have an in-principle place in to, to, to stop the, to, to cross the line and avoid the conclusion that every time you can't achieve something, your moral your rational agency, pardon me, your rational agency dies a little. <laughs> and that blurs the original element distinction. Uh, for one last example, if I'm a 21st century person with good access to healthcare, uh, and I'm also a busybody with a lot of ends, uh, it might be, might easily be, the three weeks without internet access are more detrimental to my overall achievement of ends than a broken limb. Uh, yet we seem to have something like a perfect duty to prevent a broken limb uh, if uh, it's easy for us. And we don't have a perfect duty to help people who don't have internet access for three weeks. Uh, at least that's the first intuition. And I think the first intuition is there uh, because uh, we treat broken links as more essentially related to ill-being. Either because we see health as part of well-being, uh, not just a means to it, or I think it might have something to do with the fact that it hurts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And my reply to that will be pretty pretty short because I think I agree with most of the points you make in substance. I just draw different conclusions from it. <laughs> <laughs> so with regard to the, the first point, um, which concerns the question of um, like, like in the Allies and Miria case, um, whether you have a reason to set the other person right. And in the Kantian account I gave, you only have this reason, it seems at least, if you think the other person has reached an irrational decision, or a decision which is not based on the best of reasons. And I think I entirely agree with you that uh, it doesn't have to be the case that even if you put another end in, uh, on top of and above your own well-being, that you are necessarily rational. I entirely agree with you about that. But I don't think um, making like a reaching a false result or reaching a result which is, does not reflect the balance of reason can be the only way in which you are unreasonable or irrational in forming a decision. So you might arrive at a result which is perhaps rationally permissible, but still you do it so in a problematic way because in arriving at this result, you have not taken into account one irrelevant aspect or you have not sufficiently taken into account a relevant aspect. So, um, uh, to take an example, so again, think about, so I value my, my well-being, but I also value watching the World Cup final, and I may be yeah, willing to kind of take unreasonable costs in order to be able to watch the World Cup final, and I don't think kind of in this case I'm necessarily rational, so it may be a perfectly rational result I'm arriving at. But even when I arrive at the society, I may have done so in a problematic way if I didn't think about my own well-being at all. So there might still be reason for you to try to set me right, not in me trying to get me to reach a different result, but in trying to take into account relevant factors in my decision, 
which I didn't take into account properly. So you might, so trying to set me right need not always mean that I try to make you change your decision, that you are trying to change the other decision. It may just be trying to kind of make you reconsider and then, um, yeah. They told me, don't mention the World Cup, he's German. True, true. Okay, the second point about the Leonard case and where you, where you said that um, it may not, there is no kind of strict correlation between um, the, yeah, failing to achieve your ends and like being unhappy. And I think that's entirely right. So I, I think the intensity of the pain of disappointment is not the only or an indefeasible criterion for determining how a project was to you. I think it's just one feasible criterion and um, yeah, which plays a very important role, but I think it can be, it can be trumped in some cases. And um, so I agree that in the cases uh, you just here described there, Benevolent action and action out of reverence for rational agency can come apart. Um, but um, I think, kind of, if these are not cases where I think the other person is simply wrong about, so if I think the other person is simply wrong about how happy uh, reaching an aim will make him, then we'll have a case where you have reason to set the other person right. So then we have a different kind of case. But if we don't have a case of that kind, um, I think that Kant uh, should just say, well, agents are not infallible about what will make them happy. Sadly so. <laughs> okay, then the last point um, which concerns the question of uh, cases like the Roger case and the duty of easy rescue. And I, again, I think I have agreed. I, so I, in, in one way, kind of, I agree with you that it's not the case that every kind of curtailment of your ability to reach your ends will trigger a case of easy rescue. <laughs> so I'm entirely agreeing with this. Um, but two things I would want to point out. Uh, so first, I don't think that rational agency, um, uh, sorry, that the activity of end setting is actually the same activity as the activity of end pursuit. So I think that, uh, I only think that achieving your ends or pursuing your end is what your end setting and choosing are naturally uh, directed at. And uh, I think that if one understands this link, one cannot be indifferent to your constant or general failure or inability to pursue your ends while caring about your uh, status as a rational agent and as a rational end setter. And um, so, I mean, it's true. This leaves us with the problem of where to draw the line between cases of easy rescue. And, but I'm, I'm not that unhappy that there isn't a strict line to be drawn here. I think, kind of like, there isn't, well, whether you have a strict duty to help in these cases will have to be decided often on the merits of the particular case. And it will have to be decided by balancing different concerns of yours. And yeah, if that's a bit messy, well, since it's bad luck, that's just what moral, moral reality is like. <laughs> right. Thank you very, very much to the both speakers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.